That's one of my favorite movies of all time, Les Mis. Uh, Perhaps you've read the book, one of the greatest novels ever written by Victor Hugo uh, back in the 1800s and tells the story of the French Revolution and a story of the character that you just saw there, Jean Valjean, who really goes from evil to good, um, from corruption to life, and he becomes sort of a hero in this show. And as you encounter him, you wonder, how did he get to be the man that he was? And this is the context that enables you to understand who this character is and why he responds the way that he does the rest of the movie or the book, whichever the case may be. Context, it's important, isn't it? It's always very important. As we look at Romans chapter 3, beginning with the 21st verse today, I want to give you an example how important context is. You know, sometimes I have people tell me, you know, look, I don't, I appreciate all the background. That's a little bit too much background. I'm not really interested in the background. I just want to know, um, how does this affect me today? And what's going on? I just want you to tell me what it says and then give me a good message or give me a lesson Uh, All this history, I'm not into that. I'm not into this background and this context. Well, can I tell you, particularly when you're studying Scripture, context is very important. That's how cults get started all the time. Because people or groups will take Scripture out of context and use it for their own personal benefit. The context of Scripture is always important. Now, Now, let me just give you a regular illustration of the importance of context. I want you to read a paragraph that I'm going to put on the, on the um, screen here, and I want you to just read that for just a moment, and just read that, <clears throat> and when you're finished, if you know exactly, if you say, man, I understand that paragraph, would you raise your hand? I get it. I know exactly what you're talking about there. That makes great sense to me. Okay, most of you should be finishing that up. Does anybody understand? Does that make a whole lot of sense? By the way, there's not some deep philosophical meaning, so don't raise your hand. Oh, that is deep. No, it's really not. Okay, now let me give you a context to understand. Let's leave that up there if you would, please. Let me give you a context to help you understand. I'm going to give you one word, just one word, and if you understand what this word is, it will completely open up this paragraph. It will completely reveal itself. And this whole paragraph makes one sense. It makes complete sense if you have this one word. One word. Okay, are you ready for the one word? Here it is. Kite. Like one that you fly. Kite. Now, with that context, let's read this paragraph again. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Now, if I was simply to read it, like maybe sometimes, maybe you pick up the Bible. I'm reading through, and I pick out a passage. I read a few verses. But what was the context? that you just read. As we look 
at the gospel, as we look at the story of Romans, as we look at the book of Romans, honestly, you can pick passages out of Romans. Matter of fact, even particular passages that we've already studied. If you just pick it out and you just read it without a context, it won't always make a lot of sense, and you'll miss the bigger picture. When we read Romans, we're calling it the gospel of God, because that's what Paul calls it in the very first chapter, the gospel of God. There were a lot of gospels, a lot of messages, a lot of news flashes, a lot of kingdoms that had been established, a lot of political, uh, a lot of political statements that were being given during that time. The word meant good news. It was often used when a new king came into office or a, a new king was born or someone had overthrown a, go- a government. They would say, here's the gospel, here's our agenda, here's the good news, here's the reason you ought to be excited, here's the reason you ought to be committed. That's what they would do, and that's the picture of the gospel right here. Okay, so the gospel is given. Now, what is the gospel? The bigger story of the gospel? I'll give it to you in four words. It's the, the grand narrative of Scripture. starts like this. Creation. In the beginning, God created. Creation starts. Secondly, the fall or the sin of man, the fall. So there's creation, then there's the fall, and then the third is the redemption. Christ. That's what the gospel is about. It's about the redemption of God Almighty through Jesus Christ. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Romans here. It's the gospel. And then finally, restoration. So the Bible is in four, point, four parts, and we have to understand the story, the context of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Romans is specifically addressing the issue of the fall, of our sin, of humanity's sinfulness. Okay, that's what it's addressing. And it's saying, here's the way that God will rectify, make righteous your life through the redemption of Christ so that you might enjoy restoration for eternity one day. Creation, fall, redemption, that's what we're looking at today, restoration. So we're going to concentrate, as we look at this text today, we're going to look in the middle. We're going to look at the fall, and we're going to look at the redemption. You saw a picture there in um, Les Mis. You saw how uh, the priest redeemed, um, so to speak. He gave redemption. You see the fall of Jean Valjean. And then you see the redemption, and then you see in the, from the rest of the movie the restoration, how he lives it out. This is a great picture of the biblical gospel. And I hope you will uh, pay attention closely because there are some big words here. And I think for us to understand them, we have to have the context. Now, I have those placed in your bulletin. They're on your bulletin. We don't normally do this, but I wanted you to have these words. And by the way, I'm giving you Ron's definition. You may go look these up in the dictionary and go, that's not what it says. It's because this is my definition. I'm trying to make it simple, and it's simple for my mind. I have a simple mind, and so I want you to understand, and I'm sure you know much bigger words that you could use, uh, but these are the ones that I chose from my tiny brain, okay? So as we look at these words, uh, again, if you want to look at this in a more expansive manner, then you can go and you can look up these words at a theological uh, dictionary site. But sin, you know, we often...
qualify or define sin as missing the mark. That's true, but I, I think as we read Romans, we need to understand the bigger picture. Sin is this. It's anything that challenges God's divine authority. Anything that challenges the authority of God Almighty. <clears throat> so remember, we talked about there was creation where God created mankind perfectly and without sin, but man chooses to sin. And the big part of that is it was, uh, it was in challenge to his authority. We, we struggle with this all the time. A lot of times we, we like to think, I'm, I don't really sin. I'm not really a sinner. Do you consistently or do you ever try to just take control of your life, do what you think? You know what? I, I know what the Bible says. Or I know this is probably not the right thing to do. Or I'm probably, this is probably not what I should. But you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Because this situation, and matter of fact, I'm, I'm in control. I'm going to take control. And I consistently say, God, you get off the throne. I'll be on the throne. That's sin. Or just Scripture. I see Scripture. I know Scripture says that, but I don't know. Or I, I don't even think about it. And I go my own direction. That's sin. Anything that challenges the divine authority of God. Okay. So number two, another word that we'll see in this text that's important for us to understand, law and the prophets. Sometimes you will often see this phrase, and it's simply really in its most basic form, it's the Old Testament. That's what the law and the prophets mean. When you see the word the law, that's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. When you look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, that's how Jews would have understood the, the Torah, the instruction, the, the law the manner in which you were to live to be a unique and holy people, okay? Then, and also, by the way, you see the fall in there. You see how mankind has responded to God and how he has, each man has gone his own way. So we see the law and then the prophets, although it's a little bit more than this, but just for our purposes, we're not going to get into this day. It's the rest of the Old Testament. Certainly it's the prophets. Uh, sometimes you would include the wisdom uh, literature as well. But nevertheless, when we talk about the Old Testament, the, the Torah and the prophets. So that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the Old Testament when we read that in its context. The next word we see here is forbearance. Forbearance. What does the word forbearance mean? It's the long, as it relates to God, the long-suffering patience of God. God's long-suffering and patience. We see this term used throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, sometimes it's used. Sometimes we'll even see it kind of um, communicated in this manner the full measure of God, or the full measure had not been reached. So if you went to like Genesis chapter 15, and he's talking about the Canaanites, and why have they not been punished? Because it's not written, writ, they have not come to the full measure. In other words, God still is giving them time to repent. He's giving them ample grace. He's giving them grace upon grace upon grace. And sometimes that's true of our lives and others that we know. Why has God not done something? Why do they continue to get away with this? Why? And the full measure of the grace of God that's being extended hasn't been met. It's the patience of God, the loving patience of God. Next word. Mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve, okay? In other words, um, the Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The mercy is that you don't experience eternal spiritual death, the mercy of God. You're not getting, because of Christ, you're not getting what you deserved. You're not getting the cost of sin. That's mercy. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what you don't deserve. 
it's not just that you're forgiven of your sins. It's that God gives you grace. He gives you the blessing, the approval, the relationship, the affirmation, the fullness of his spirit. The fullness of his presence. That's what grace is. It's a gift that's given unto you that you've not earned or deserved. It is lavished upon you. So mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Which leads us to our next word here, justification. Now this word is so much larger, and I really could have written an entire paragraph, really an entire page on this word. But for our purposes, to try to understand this, um, don't think of it purely in our own legal system, but understand it in this matter, although it is that partially. It's the mercy and the grace and the righteousness and the redemption as well of God given to you. You've been justified because of the mercy, grace, and righteousness of Christ. Now you are justified. Now you are made just. It, the, the, the verdict has been given, but because of the credit that has been established, because of the gift, because of the exoneration, the mercy, the grace, and the righteousness of God has been given to you. So you're now justified. Go into the next word. Righteousness. Pure, invalidated standing with God. In other words, you're in the correct relationship with God. It's pure. You're, you're seen as cleansed, as pure, and it's validated. What do I mean it's validated? Well, because of Christ's blood, once we've trusted Christ, then his righteousness is applied to us. Not ours, but his perfected righteousness is applied to our countenance. We are seen as right and correct. It's the righteousness of God. It's given to us, okay? It's not something that we earn or that we deserve or that we can obtain. It is a gift of mercy and grace and righteousness, and it validates us. Otherwise, we could not stand before a holy God because of our sinfulness, but we have been declared righteous. We have been made righteous, right, by Christ Jesus, okay? Next word, propitiation. This is a big word. We don't use this very often because people would scratch their head and try to look it up on their phone while I'm preaching. But anyway, act that results in the change of God's disposition toward us. An act that results in the change of a disposition toward us. So, so let me give you a, a, an illustration to help you understand this. There is a, a TV show um, that sometimes I watch uh, called NCIS, and uh, some of you maybe watched it before, but uh, it's basically uh, a show about crimes in the Navy and these um, the petty officer, and they have lawyers, and they have people who go and, and deal with crimes and deal with things that happen uh, from the legal system in this movie. So anyway, with that said, there's one particular scene. This is years and years ago. Charles Durning, who was an actor who died not long ago, he's playing the part of an, an old Marine. Uh, and this old Marine has long since served and he uh, has, you know, he had served for a long time, but now he, he's in his 80s, he's older, and uh, he's accused of a crime, apparently, that maybe he committed earlier, and so he's not come in. So they send these other two, basically, MPs, these Marines that come with a lawyer to come get him, and they find him in his office, and they come to grab him, and his friend uh, basically tries to get them to lighten up, and they said, look, he's been accused of a crime, and he hasn't come in on his own, so we're taking him in. And so they're very gruff. 
they're about to forcefully pick him up and take him away. And they're treating him with no honor, with no respect. And his friend does something interesting. His friend moves his tie, and when he moves his tie, he sees the Medal of Honor hanging around his neck. Those Marines immediately stop, they straighten up, they salute, they give him great respect and honor. And their disposition changes completely. From one, as they see him as a criminal, somebody who has not come in, somebody who is, is a bad soldier, so to speak, or a bad Marine, and then they see that Medal of Honor, and it changes their disposition because they recognize what he must have done to have earned that. That meant he had saved, probably because of his life, hundreds of Marines and soldiers' had, lives had been saved. He had, at great cost, risked his life, probably taking on wounds himself. They realize that that's not just given out to anyone. That's very rare. That is the highest award given to military personnel uh, in service today. And so, because of what that represents, they realize his record is far beyond theirs and that he, do, he is due respect and honor. That's the picture. It's like God, it's like Jesus has taken his medal of honor and placed it upon us. And then when God sees us because of our trust and our relationship with Christ, his disposition is completely changed. Instead of seeing one who is an adversary, who, who is seeking to remove him from the throne, he, they see as he, we're seen as children, as sons, as heirs. God's the propitiation of what Christ has done completely changes the disposition toward us because of what Christ has done, because we have his record, his honor. Next word, redemption, the payment of our debt or the payment of our enslavement. Um, in those days, particularly in the Jewish culture, there was no such thing as bankruptcy, okay? You didn't really have bankruptcy like we have it today. If you got in debt, it was handled one of two ways. They would come and take whatever you had of value, and um, if they had to, they would take your land, which was kind of a drastic course. They would take your land. And then if that still was not enough, or maybe you had no land, then your life, you, they would take part of your life. It may be, they may, an arbitrator might say, okay, that's seven years of service unto them. You're basically going to be uh, an indentured servant. You're going to be enslaved because they will have full rights over your time, your efforts, your work, all that you have, all that you do will be under the guidance, enslavement, under this individual that you owe. And so that's how most people, it was either through war or because you took on so much debt, either through unwise decisions or catastrophes, and you kind of had to work your way out. You had to serve your time. And sometimes it might be a life it might be a lifetime. You might have owed so much, and your children might even fall under that. So that's the picture here. But redemption is someone pays that. In the Old Testament, and we'll talk about a story here in a moment with Ruth, uh, there would be, so there's a term called the kinsman redeemer. The, the Hebrew word is goel. There would be a goel. And the goel would be someone who who had some kind of relationship to you, some kind of blood. You might be an uncle, cousin, uh, second cousin, brother-in-law, whatever. Somehow there was a connection uh, through relationship. And secondly, it was someone who would say I, they choose, they would willingly choose to pay it. And number three, they had the capacity to absorb your debt and to pay your debt. That's the picture of redemption. We have a debt because of our sin that we cannot pay before God. 
But there is a goel, there's a kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, who comes and assumes and takes on the debt, and we are redeemed at that point. That's the picture of redemption. And then uh, I believe we have one other or two other words, boasting ultimate praise. What is boasting? We'll see this term in Romans and throughout the book of Romans, that term boasting. It's not just going, hey, look at me, I'm really strong. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a term that was used, uh, particularly if you were getting ready to go into battle, or a king might use this uh, to firm uh, his people uh, before they, that kingdom had to fight or defend its nation or its city or whatever the case might be, there would be a statement, there would be a speech, there would be a motivation, um, a, a lot like you see in Shakespeare with Henry V at uh, St. Crispin's Eve, where he gives the eloquent speech from Shakespeare, or uh, another one might be um, Winnie Winston Churchill, the famous speech that he made uh, to the British people that we will never, never surrender. We'll fight them in the seas. We'll fight them on the beach. We'll fight them in the streets. What are you saying? You're saying, look, we believe in this, in this principle, and we are strong enough, and we are righteous. We are right, and we can do this, and we believe that we are more powerful than them, that we have what is right on our side, and we will stand, and we'll not give up. My, my, my favorite one, of course, and who knows if it really happened this way, uh, but in Braveheart, William Wallace giving his speech before the troops. You know, they're ready to run and leave, and he comes, and, and he rouses them up. It was a boasting. We're right. And we're right before God, and this is our homeland, and this is our value, and this is what we believe in, and this is who we are, and we're bigger and better people than they are. And they're boasting, and that's what he's talking about. That's the kind of boasting he's talking about. And then the last one here, faith, it's ultimate trust. So boasting is ultimate praise. This is the ultimate praise where faith is the ultimate trust. Again, these are Ron's definitions. Just got to clarify that, okay? Now, with that context that you have, let's read Romans 3, beginning with the 21st verse. The gospel of God. It basically is, it goes like this. Uh, what's wrong with our world and what God has done uh, to make it right? This is what God has done to make it right. But now, the righteousness of God. And by the way, many scholars would say what a better translation of this term, the righteousness of God, might be is the righteousness of from God. In other words, this is righteousness from God that is being granted unto you. But now the righteousness from God has been manifested, demonstrated, shown, revealed apart from the law. Remember, we talked about what the law was. The law is the Torah. It's the instruction given to the Jewish people. It, was, it exposed what sin was. This is how you are to live, but no one's going to live it out perfectly, but this is what it would look like. So you understand what it is. It's been manifested, but the righteousness from God is being given to you apart from the law. The law is not giving it to you. Your obedience to the law is not giving it to you. It's apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness of it. Remember we talked about the law and the prophets. This is the Old Testament as a whole. Bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, the righteousness from God, the, the rightness that is being given to you, through how? Faith, ultimate trust. What is faith, ultimate trust? What do you put your trust in? We can tell by our bank account, by the way we spend our time, by what we do when we are in a pickle. What, how, where do we start? Whatever we ultimately trust in, 
but our ultimate trust, our faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? Believe. Pisteo, who are committed, who believe, who place their faith in. For there is no distinction, he's talking about from the Jew or the Greek, it's part of what Romans described, just because you grew up as a Jew or just because in our context, you, if you want to use it this way, you grew up in church, just because you know right from wrong, just because you know the message, doesn't make you better. There's no distinction. Doesn't matter what your nationality is, doesn't matter how good a person you are. There's no distinction for all, this is that key verse right here, every one of us have sinned, are sinning, and will sin some more. And if God's record is perfection in his blood of Christ, it's, it's, like, that, it's like that medal of honor. You know what, I'm going to work really, really hard to try to get one of those. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, you're not in the military, you can't get one. But, but what if I try to buy it? What if I try to be really good? What if I watch lots and lots of History Channel? You, you can't get there. And, it's, and that's just a ridiculous statement. If you ask someone in the military or someone certainly who had one, you, you can't. The only way you could ever have a Medal of Honor, by the way, is if someone gave it to you. You could never earn it or deserve it. You would have to have it passed down from your father to your child or whatever the situation might be. But in this instance, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified, remember that word, justified by what? By his grace. Something that you don't deserve as a gift through redemption, a payment has been absorbed, your sin has been absorbed, that is in Christ Jesus. Who absorbed it? Who's the goel? Jesus Christ. We continue whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood, who God put forth. Oh, Christ is here. I see the metal. I see Christ. His disposition is changed because of the blood of Christ is covered. The Bible said there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Christ gives his blood to be received by faith. So I believe that, and by faith I have put my ultimate trust in this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his patience, his divine forbearance, he had passed over our former sins. The sins that we've committed in the past and the sins that are being committed in our life now. God in his forbearance, he's been patient. And now it's been passed over because the righteousness of Christ has been appointed or has been credited to us. Just as it was to Abraham. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, he might be right as the judge and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, ultimate trust in Christ. Then what becomes of our boasting? Well, I'm a good person. Well, I'm a Jew and I have uh, lived by the law. My family line goes way back. I am up to date on my sacrifices. I serve at my church. I give. I try not to drink, spit, and chew, or date people that do, or whatever it is that we think we can boast about. What becomes of our boasting? How good you are. It's excluded. Doesn't count. It's of no consequence. Your good deeds... They don't add up. It is nothing in the sight of God. It's our sin. Here's the problem. Most of us have what I call a theology of baseball. 
theology of baseball. You know how baseball works. Um, baseball, as a matter of fact, I, was, I looked yesterday. Uh, if you can hit, get a hit one out of every three times, you are an all-star. You are a flipping all-star. If you do that for your life, you'll be in the Hall of Fame. Just one for three. That means two times you don't get on. You could strike out, but once every three times, that's really good. Once out of four times, and you can be on the roster. Once on every five times, and we'll probably maybe, we might let you be a pinch hitter every once in a while, but, but one for three. You think, man, that's really good. Matter of fact, Mookie Betts is hitting like 357 right now. That's a little more than one for three, but it's still not anywhere close one for two. Matter of fact, the Holy Grail, and I think Tid Williams is probably the only one that's really done this. Um, baseball fans, you can correct me. One or two people that have ever hit 400. That's still just 40%. No one's ever hit 50%. I'm not talking about T-ball guys. And nobody in the major leagues has ever hit 50%. Just half the time, they're getting on base. No one's ever hit. So we're kind of like that. We like that. Baseball's a good sport. Yes, it's not every time. I'm a good person. And I do what God likes. A good portion of the time. 50% of the time. That's a far cry when you go before a judge and, you say, and he said, you know, for whatever your crime might be, let's say it's theft. Well, half the time I walk through a store, I don't steal anything. <laughs> Guilty. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By the law of works? In other words, by your own righteousness, by your own good deeds? No. That's not how you come before Christ. That's not how you're forgiven. That's not how you experience salvation, but by the law of faith, ultimate trust, and what Christ has done for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In other words, in spite of your deeds. You see, salvation uh, is given to us by grace, and then we live by grace. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. doesn't mean that we don't mistakes. We, we do. Uh, the problem is some of us need to repent of our righteousness or self-perceived righteousness. I'm a good person. I've always been a good person. I always believed that there was a God. I'm good. And Paul says, no, apart from your righteousness, apart from your goodness. You see, if Christ's righteousness is not applied to your account, then you are in opposition to God. That's the only righteousness he'll accept. Perfection. Batting a thousand. And I only bat a hundred. And there's a nine hundred gap. And God says, Jesus, if you will put your faith and trust in what he's done, will fill in that gap that you could never obtain that you could never earn, that you'll never deserve. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you mercy. You're not going to get what you do deserve. I'm going to give you grace. You get what you never could have ever imagined, and you get my medal of honor. You get my righteousness. You get the highest honor possible. The blood of Christ is applied to your account. It's paid in full from now and forever and for eternity. That's the picture of the gospel salvation that Paul is presenting to us here. Many of you have maybe heard the story of Hosea in the Bible. Maybe you've not read it, but the story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in a time in the life of his people that uh, most are unrighteous. They've not been obedient 
to God. They've fallen away. And Hosea is a, a prophet, and he, uh, we don't know his complete connection, but there's a woman named Gomer that he must know and possibly has some attraction to, and he's ready to be married. And what does God tell him? He said, uh, go and take Gomer, but Gomer is not going to be faithful. This is going to be a message. This is going to be a picture of, of our lives, of God, and how before Israel and Judah, how they have responded to me. And so he said, go and take her as your wife. So he goes and he takes her as his wife. And uh, things probably start off pretty well, but then she, he starts to see problems. He recognizes that she's not completely faithful. And then she has a child and he recognizes it's not his. And matter of fact, that's what his name, not mine. And then there's another child and another child. And these children don't even belong to him. And then she will leave and then sometimes return. Then she finally runs off, leaving him with the children and she hooks up with a man and then another man and then finally she finds herself in enslavement in debt so to speak um, to another man who owns her and he's putting her up to pay off her debts as one to be auctioned off as a slave and Hosea hears about it and God impresses upon him his heart and convicts him to go and to be the Goel the kinsman redeemer and this wife who has been unfaithful who has had children by other men and who's run off with countless men who've been unfaithful and has now found herself in a slave he has to go take what he has and he probably doesn't have a lot but he has to take it and he has to gather it up and he probably has to sell some things and he goes and for this woman who has been unfaithful who has left them who has marred his reputation who has not loved him who has not honored their vows he bids on her and he buys her absorbs her debt and he takes her home as his wife he extends mercy and grace not because she's earned it or because he deserved it but because he loves her and because God has led him to do so and it's an amazing story of redemption and it's a beautiful picture of us we're Gomer we each go our own way, our own direction, looking for love in all the wrong places, trying to find happiness in so many faces, and looking for something else that will fill our empty souls that we replace God by. We put our idol upon the throne. But God says, I have a go out for you, my son Jesus. And the only way I'm going to forgive, I'm going to be able to forgive this treason is for my son cover you with his righteousness the righteousness of God if you put your faith and your trust in what he's done then I will forgive you and I will see you as a righteous child because of Jesus not because of what you've done not because you're going to make it up not because you're going to be good enough but because of what you've done and then you're going to be so overwhelmed by the grace of God that you want to obey that you want to follow that you want to seek me have you come to that place where you recognize that quite frankly you're a gomer. Some of us need to repent again of our goodness because that's what we've been counting on. But Paul lets us know very clearly it's only because of the righteousness of God. It's the gospel of God. If you received that gift, would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you, Lord, for 
this incredible passage of Scripture that helps us to understand our need. It exposes our sin, but the great news of the gospel is it shows us how much you love us, that you've extended mercy and grace, and that in our justification process, Lord, we have been the propitiation. You no longer see us as a sinner, but you see us as righteous because of Christ Jesus. And you have redeemed us. You have absorbed our sin so that now we are right. We are freed from the debt of enslavement of sin, of self-serving, of self-righteousness, of trying to earn it or be good enough. And we receive by grace your salvation provided through Jesus Christ and his blood and his righteousness. Lord, for any who don't know you today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.